Turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, we're going to be reading verses 2 through 6. We are a week away from finishing our study in Colossians. As we've seen throughout this study, Paul is trying to show you that Christ is supreme. He's preeminent. He is Lord over all. And if you believe that he is supreme, if you believe that he is Lord over all, then we ought to live in a certain way. So if you've been... Colossians 2, 12, buried with Christ. In Colossians 3, 1, if you've been raised with Christ and we're to seek and to set our minds on things above, we're to put away, we're to put to death evil works, verses 5 through 8, as a, even as a congregation, as, as a whole, we're to be putting on certain qualities, Christ-like qualities that we ought to be living out in and amongst each other. Our families ought to be changed. The husband-wife relationship, the parent-child relationship ought to be changed. How we work ought to be changed, according to chapter 3 through 4.1. Now things turn, and Paul's getting ready to wrap up this letter. But if you still believe that Jesus is supreme, then how should we act towards one another? How should we act towards the lost? And this is how these, this leads us in this text today. One commentator said the new creational lifestyle, right, the, the new life of love, unity, peace, this Christocentric focus which especially is to be lived out in the family, in the workplace, is to lead to prayer for the effective spread of the gospel and to witness to unbelievers. This is what we're going to look at today. These two things, prayer and the spread of the gospel. Another writer summed up these two segments, thought really well, Colossians 4, 2 through 6, by saying this passage is about speaking to God about people. And speaking to people about God. It's about speaking to God about people and about speaking to people about God. So first, let's look at speaking to God about people in Colossians 4, 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And there's a lot of elements that you'd want to incorporate into your life. This is not an exhaustive study. Verse number 2 is not an exhaustive study on prayer. But let's at least look at four qualities in verses 2, 3, and 4, that ought to be in everybody's prayer life. Okay, first, right? Consistency in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. You need to have a consistent prayer life. We are to tarry and remain in prayer. In Luke 18, 1, which we read earlier today, Jesus told them a parable that they ought always to pray. You ought always to pray. Pray, do not lose heart. Continue steadfastly. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That's the first quality. The second is to be watchful. Be on alert, right? Being watchful in it. While in the garden, Jesus told his disciples in Mark 14, 38, what did he tell them? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Be on guard. Be vigilant. Be on guard from the spiritual dimension, right? Because we wrestle not against powers and principalities, because, sorry, we don't wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. The spiritual dimension, but also we are to be praying, expecting God to do a work. Doesn't mean he's going to do what you always want him to do. But we Hand it over to him, and then we trust him. Do what's best. Do what's best. Watch and pray. Be on alert. The spirit is willing to flesh his weak. The third quality needed in prayer is thankfulness. Right? He says, with 
thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. One author said of this, prayer and thanksgiving can never be disassociated from each other in the Christian life. The remembrance of former mercies not only produces spontaneous praise and worship, it also is a powerful incentive to renewed believing prayer. He said there's something about recalling to your mind the goodness of God to you on a regular basis. Not only calling it to mind, but in turn, thanking God for it. When's the last time you thanked God for saving your soul? Saving your soul. We were good at thanking Him for breakfast, and for lunch, and for dinner. How about salvation? Grace? His faithfulness? It's, it's new every morning. How we have to thank God. Didn't the old hymn teach us to count our blessings and name them one by one? But we rarely count our blessings, let alone name them. So we're to pray, pray often. We're to be vigilant, alert, expecting something to happen. We're to praise God in our daily prayer. And lastly, in verses 3 and 4, we see another quality of godly prayer. He says in verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That I may make it clear how I ought to speak. The fourth quality is to pray for others. Pray for others. Typically our prayer concern, if we do pray for others, is revolved around what? Sickness, isn't it? Inevitably, if we're praying for somebody, typically they're sick. Are we allowed to pray for people's sicknesses? Yes. Should we? Sure. Absolutely. Who can heal? Who's Jehovah Rapha? Who can heal? God. But at the same time, the majority of our prayers ought to be focused on the spiritual aspect of that person, the spiritual life. Where are they at? How are they doing? How will they respond to God in this moment? Think of all the prayers recorded in the Word of God. How many deal with specific physical ailments? How many deal with the praise to God that he deserves? How many deal with the spiritual aspect of another person? What's Paul asking for here? What's he asking for in verses 3 and 4? Remember where he is at when he wrote this book? He's in jail. What does he say? Pray for me about what? Pray for God to open a door out of this jail cell. I mean, he's done it before. You don't have to pray for that. Pray for God to open the door for the gospel. But Paul, you're in jail. What good are you right there? My God is great. He can take care of me. Don't worry about me. Pray for the gospel to go forth. Pray that I will be a faithful steward of it. Because the mission he gave me, the mission he gave you, go make disciples. Not go get out of jail. Go have a fat retirement. Go have a sweet 401k. Go make disciples. That's the command. That's the mandate. Pray I will do that. Pray that God allow me to be an effective witness, effective tool. Another note, notice that what Paul is doing, just as a side note, Paul, the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, what's he doing? In verses 3 and 4. He's asking the believers in Colossae to do what? Pray. 
For who? For me to be an effective witness. Paul needs prayer. Paul is not too proud to ask for prayer. Paul's not worried about inconveniencing somebody else because he doesn't want to burden them with his sorrows. So he said, pray, um, pray for me. Pray for me. I need God. And, I, and because I believe I need God, I'm going to recruit everybody I can to take me to his throne. I'll tell anybody, pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me. And sometimes when missionaries come, Right? And they say, more than your money, what we covet your prayers. And, and we kind of think at the same time, what do we think? Really? Because you, don't you really need our money to get there? You know what I mean? Covet our prayers. No, they covet your prayers. Because they know, I need God to do this task. He can provide money. We've seen, right, 924000 God can provide money like that. He can take care of them. But take me to the throne. Take me there often. Pray I would be an effective tool in his hand. If I'm sick, yes, pray when I'm sick. I don't want to be sick. That's not fun. But pray I'm an effective witness. Because even if I'm dying, pray I would be an effective witness. Brother, sister, Paul's asking for prayer. If you do not have me on your prayer list, I beg you, put me there. What should you pray for me? I would be an effective tool in God's hand. I covet your prayers. Please put me on there. You should do the same thing to me. Pastor, pray. Hey, brother, sister, pray. Put me on the prayer list. I don't care who knows. I want to be an effective tool in the hand of God. These are the four qualities. Not the only qualities of prayer, but there are four qualities Paul points out here in prayer. This is how we ought to speak to God about people. Now, how should we speak to people about God? And that's the next point here. Look at verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be Always be gracious and season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I mentioned earlier, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, the command Jesus gives his followers, go make disciples. Go make disciples. Sometimes we get lost on how to do that or how to start that conversation up with somebody. We we're trying to figure out how do we even get that rolling? And you wonder, can, can God use me to do that? He's using Paul, who's currently in a jail cell. So yes, he can use you. And Paul has gone through this where he states at the beginning of chapter 1, especially verses 3 through 11, where he says, I'm praying for you. And now in chapter 4, he says, now you pray for me. At the end of chapter 1, specifically verse 1, chapter, sorry, chapter 1, verse 28, he says, I'm proclaiming the gospel to as many people as I can, because I want to present as many people as I can to the Lord that are, are full, mature in Christ. That's what I'm doing, proclaiming the good news. And in chapter 4, he's going to say, so you proclaim the good news too. I'm not asking you to do something I'm not doing. I'm praying for you. Pray for me. I'm witnessing. You should be witnessing. This is a command. Go make disciples. But also notice, too, before we get into how to do this, notice where 
where the responsibility lies in saving souls. Because look back at verse 3. What does Paul tell the Colossian believers to pray for? He says, pray for who? God to do what? To open a door for the word. So it's not in a clever pitch. It's not, hey, let me pull out and see this map right here. If you follow this map, people will repent. If you've ever witnessed to somebody, you know that's not how it works. Have you ever witnessed to somebody and just messed it all up? Your words that are jumbled in there. And yet people are still going, you're right. You're like, wait, what? Man, I'm following this up. It's just like the person casting the seed. You know, man, I feel like that person does it way better than me. It's not how you cast it. Is it landing in good soil? Rocky soil? Thorny soil? Is it landing on the road? What's the responsibility? Cast. Share the good news. Who opens the door? You? Your clever wordplay? Your great illustration? No. No. And I don't say that to say, well then, take no thought. No, I say it, brothers and sisters, say, take the burden off. The Word of God and the Spirit of God. These two things, the Word of God and the Spirit of God, those two things change the heart. Not you. So rest in that. It's not on my exact wording. No, God, open the door. Pray for the door to be open. When the door's open, then share it. Do it. So this takes the pressure off us. But, but how, do you, how do you do this? How do you witness to others? Paul is going to give you a couple steps in this process. And believe it or not, it's not going to be on how to walk through the Romans road. Although you should know the Romans road. That's a good thing to know in sharing the gospel. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a good place to take people. For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. That's good. You don't know those verses. What's amazing is that he doesn't talk about that. What he does talk about is first, step one, what you're to do, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, towards unbelievers. Walk in wisdom towards unbelievers. You want to be an effective witness? Step one, the way you conduct yourself around unbelievers ought to be right. One author said Paul knew only too well the importance of giving the world no reason to criticize or gossip at the behavior of Christians. Does that sound like right now? That the world has no reason to criticize or gossip about the behavior of Christians? It's like the exact opposite. He says, blameless life lays the foundation for gracious witness. Let me repeat that. Blameless life lays the foundation for gracious witness as Christians, make the most of every opportunity. It has to start here. Put your money where your mouth is. You believe in Christ? If you've been buried with him, if you've been raised with him, then seek, then set, then put away, put to death, put on. Have a changed home. Have a changed husband-wife relationship. Have a changed home, a changed parent child relationship. Do your work as unto the Lord. Want to be an effective witness? Start there. Have a blameless life when you are around unbelievers. That is the first one. 
Second, as you continue going on, you see number two, he says, make the best use of your time. Make the best use of your time. The word translated, make the best use, in some translations will say redeeming the time. And the word is to redeem, or it means to buy back. Buy back the time. Buy back the time. And Paul uses this word twice in Galatians, speaking of how Christ bought us back. He says in Galatians 3.13, listen to this, Christ redeemed, this is that word, buy back, Christ bought us back from the curse of the law. In Galatians 4.15, we see Christ was born to redeem, to buy back those who were under the law. He bought us back. He bought us out of that situation. But how do you buy time? How do you do that? How do you buy it? I mean, time, it's still going as we're speaking. How do you buy it back? How do you take advantage of this? And especially, how do you buy back time in regard to what? Our witness. This is what is in context he's speaking about. He's not talking about you being disciplined in a regular daily regiment. Buy back the time to spread the good news of the gospel. So how do you do this? Have you ever walked into a store and the very item you were looking for was on sale? Is that a happy day? Now think of your next big purchase. Big purchase. Right? Whether you're a small child and it's a lollipop or an ice cream, whatever it is. Or two, maybe brother or sister you're looking for, I'm getting that car, or we're getting ready to get a sweet brand new HVAC because ours is dead, whatever it is. Okay, what are you thinking of buying? Can you imagine walking into a store and you see it, and it's 90% off? What do you do at that moment? You, you buy the item, Right? If you're walking in, you're like, what? And if you only need one and they have five, but they're 90% off. And your spouse is like, what are you going to do with all of them? I don't know, but it's on sale. 90%, I'll take them all. Because you're walking into the store looking for an opportunity to buy something, you see it and you jump on it. Now, have you ever walked into a store and you saw something and there's only maybe one left, and you thought, man, I wonder if I should get that. And then you, ah, I'm going to give it a little bit of time, and you walk away, and you come back, and it's gone. You ever had that happen to you? And what, and what happened? You missed your opportunity. It's, it's gone now. The Christian that is buying back the time for gospel witness realizes, I have 24 hours like you have 24 hours in a day. God's given us the same amount of time. But when I get out of bed, I, I, it's like I'm walking into the store and instead of trying to find a sweet, super deal, I'm looking for opportunities to share the gospel. And when I see it, that's it. I've got to do it now because it may be lost. That is buying back the time. I'm redeeming, I'm looking with ample opportunity. Where, where could it be? Where could it be today? Where could it be? There was a, a sweet senior saint. Her name was, is, still alive, Carol Froelich. She lives in Richmond. She's the best I've ever seen at doing this. If I could be like Miss Carol someday, I would be a better Christian. Miss Carol, Mr. Al, 
frolic. They're, they were senior saints. They worked on a mission field. They were in the Philippines, and then they ended up retiring in Richmond. They came to our church, and I ended up recruiting them. And they, they were in their 70s. They ended up recruiting them to work on a youth staff. And people go, oh, no, you can't. I'm too old. And, I, and they're like, well, we're too old. They say, if you can just show up and love people, you could be on youth staff. I don't know why people think teens are the worst. They're the best. If you can just show up and love them, you got it in. So come, come work. So they started coming, and we just have them just share their life once a year. Just stand up, tell them about who you are, how you came to the Lord, about your effective testimony. But Miss Carol, every week she's coming in, telling this story about how she met somebody and saw an opportunity and snatched it up. I can't remember when she fell out of her car, if that was the time she broke her hip or not. When she fell out of a car, just frail, and a lady comes to help her, and after they're calling him, she's telling them, do, do you know who God is? Do you know who Jesus is? So she's like, she's like, I'm laying on the ground, I'm not sure. She goes, but I'm trying to tell her about Jesus. Miss Carol, like, you, you're hip, like, what are you doing? Taking, I'm buying back the time. I don't know if I'll ever see that lady again. What other news could I tell her? God, make me like Carol Froehlich. Help us as a church buy the time, have eyes to see the opportunities that are around us. We are to buy back the time. We also see we are to let our speech, he says, always be gracious. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Let your speech, and let's include our typing fingers or our posable thumbs, let the words we use in voice and paper or on screen, let them sometimes be gracious. It's key how much meaning changes with one word. Let your speech sometimes be gracious. Let your speech often be gracious. Let your speech always be gracious. Always. Are your words gracious? Especially towards unbelievers. Right now, it seems like there are few neutral ground stances one can take. There are few that you can take without just people volatile, just, just like, it's like nitroglycerin plant. If you mention where you stand on anything, so be aware of the culture within which we live. One statement I can make, having nothing to do with the gospel, could set people off. Like, well, they shouldn't get that offended. Or maybe you should adjust to the culture. And your words should be gracious. I mean, think through where people stand on Trump or Northam, mask or no mask, conspiracy virus, not a virus. It's not even a conspiracy. Or it's the, it's the bubonic plague. One statement, one statement you can make could tick off 20, 30 unsaved people by what you say or what they see you saying. And the question I ask, brother, sister, look at me, the question I ask, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Whether you hate the system or you don't hate the system, should you vote? Yes. 
Should you be a good citizen? Yes. If you realize there's volatility over an issue, if people realize you shouldn't say if you like Coke or Pepsi, don't say anything. If you recognize it's just going to set off a bomb. Because the end goal is not for them to get you to drink Coke or Pepsi. What's the end goal? They need to know Christ. They need to know the gospel. Not if you believe you should wear a mask or not. Because people are really dying. And if it's their mother or father that died from this disease, and they see a callous statement, they may go, I don't have want nothing to do with you. Be gracious. Always be gracious with your words. Always. Can we disagree? Sure. But recognize, especially when you're putting things on the social media platform, the whole world can see it. If you're talking to your friend and you know you can disagree on things, that's okay. But recognize that culture. Recognize the difference. You talking to a person by yourself and you know we can disagree and we can handle things that's all right and I can still present the gospel to them and they know that's fine. Be very careful. Be very careful in what you say because there are words to always be gracious. So think through your last 10, 15 posts. Are, are they filled with grace or are they filled with venom? Not only are words to be gracious, they're also to be seasoned with salt. This is a popular phrase back then in this culture, and it was salt gives your food a little taste, right? Salt gives your food zip. Paul expected Christians to speak of Christ and the gospel in an appealing, witty, colorful way. When Rebecca and I came to visit Lexington, we were looking for a home, and we stopped at a fast food restaurant here. And walked in there, we're trying to grab breakfast, and I asked the, the lady working, I said, hey, and I asked her about a menu, you know, an item on the menu. Hey, is that any good? And she was like, no. And I lost it. I mean, I started laughing. Rebecca starts laughing. And, we're <laughs> uh, and I was like, well, thanks for the heads up. Uh, that is not how you are to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Has Jesus done anything good for you? Right? People ought to know that you think it's good for them to taste and see that the Lord is good. It's going to be even better when they realize you have been tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Come. Eat what I eat. Do what I do. Because God is good. You won't regret it. Taste and see. Our words are to be always gracious. They are to be seasoned with salt. Lastly, Paul expects every Christian Every Christian, look at the end of verse number six here. He expects every Christian, not just the leaders of the church, to know how they ought to answer an unbeliever. You ought to know how you, how you ought to answer an unbeliever. He says in verse six that you may know how you ought to answer each person. What is your hobby? What is something that you love to do outside of your work? Board games? Can you explain the rules to your favorite board game? How about sports? Can you explain the major rules or the basics, how to take a jump shot? Can you explain that basic to somebody else? How about sewing? Could you inform me on how to do a cross stitch? Because I'm clueless. I don't know. But could you tell me? How about hunting? What's the difference in all these rifles? Does it matter which rifle you take to go hunting? Doesn't matter. What's a hunter going to say? Yeah. So when I go to try to shoot a bear or shoot a deer, should I act like a bear? Because they're like a predator. So should I be 
you know, growling like a bear. No, you're crazy. Could you tell me how to hunt? I've never hunted for deer before. Could you explain it to me? When somebody comes up that doesn't know Jesus, could you explain to them what it means to know Jesus? Friend, if you know the rules to your favorite board game, if you know the rules to your favorite sport, if you know the basic rudiments, the basics of how to sew, cross-stitch, play an instrument, should we not know the basics of Christianity? Should we not know how to inform others on how to do this? If I can teach them how to make a jump shot, I better be able to teach them how to know Jesus, which is far better than anything I could teach them. So what does all this mean for us today? Let me ask you a few questions and we'll close out. First off, friend, are, are you an outsider? Whether you're here in this building or you're listening online, are you an outsider? Are you someone that has yet to put their faith and trust in Christ? You do not know Christ as Lord. I encourage you today, come to him. He is supreme. He is preeminent. Give him your life. You can do so by admitting that you are a sinner, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and calling on his name. If you have questions, email us, see us after the service. We'd love to talk to you about this. If you're here and you have received Christ as Lord, let me ask you a few questions. First, how is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? Do you pray often? Pray consistently? While praying, are you thankful? Are your prayers focused on you and your immediate family or your prayers focused on others? Are your prayers focused on physical or spiritual? Don't forget to pray for the spiritual. Next, how is your witness? How often do you speak to others about God? Are you walking in wisdom towards unbelievers? Are you walking in wisdom towards unbelievers? Are, are you using your time to witness? Are you looking and praying for opportunities to share the gospel? You know, it would be good for you and for me is to take this week and pray every day, God, open the door. Open the door for me to share. Help me to be looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Help me to be like Carol Froelich. Or maybe you know somebody that's like Carol Froelich. How many be like them? Is your speech are your typing fingers, are they gracious, always gracious? Is it seasoned with salt? Lastly, are you prepared to talk to an unbeliever about the gospel? You may know how to hunt or play sports or sew or play an instrument. You've got to know this basic, basic, basic fundamentals of the Christian faith. You need to know them. You need to be able to explain them to somebody else. You can do it with God's help. Hide God's word in your heart, right? It's going to be good for you. It's going to help you not to sin. But keep hiding it in your heart so you can then turn and teach others also. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, help me help us. There's so much in this text in these verses 2 through 6. Lord, that speak to my heart things that I have to do better. Lord, help us as a church to pray like Paul suggests. Help us to speak to God about others. Lord, help us also to speak to others about God. Help us to make the best use of our time 
snatching up the opportunities that you provide us. Help us to look for them. Help us to pray for them. In the name we pray. Amen.